Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us for this message. You're listening to part four of our series called Relationship Reboot. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. If you guys haven't realized by now, we're a Jesus church. And what that means, it's all about Jesus. We're in a relationship series, but my hope is that you see Jesus by the end of this. John chapter 7 is where we're going to start this morning. Verse 37, it says, On the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. I want to call our message this morning, our deepest desire, our deepest desire. Can we just give a round of applause for the Lord, for the worship team? You guys can be seated. We're so glad that you could be here. My name's Harrison. I'm the pastor here. Uh, Everyone watching in the building, everyone watching online, so honored you took time to be here uh, this morning. Uh, I encourage you, we're about to go into a message here, so if you could please just uh, take some notes uh, this morning, that would be amazing. And so our message is called Our Deepest Desire. Uh, In brackets, you could write, what I really want, what I really want. Now, for those of you guys who uh, are unaware, my wife and I, we have uh, twin baby girls, They're a year and a half old, and they are the cutest babies in the world. Um, And if you don't think they're cute, either you haven't seen them or you're free to leave our church. Um, (laughs) Now, you guys may remember a time, uh, this was kind of at the beginning of coronavirus, um, when we realized the virus could not be defeated in 14 days. Anyone remember that? Um, And so we all kind of realized, like, this is going to go on for a long time. And, And so... What we did, uh, my wife and I, along with most people, uh, we decided we need to buy some outdoor gear, right? Like, be prepared to hang out outside, nothing's open. And so we decided that we wanted to buy a bike trailer for our girls. You guys know what a bike trailer is? You attach it to the back of your bike, go on many adventures. And so we decided that we are going to buy one of these for our girls. Now, right around that time, I had just discovered a store. Um, And it was a store full of amazing deals, as far as the eye could see. Uh, It was a liquidation store. Now, (laughs) what you need to realize is that many of us, um, we try to run away from our past, and and specifically our family heritage. Um, There's a saying I heard that Jesus lives in your heart, but your family lives in your bones. And so what that means is like as much as you try to escape from your family, as much as you try to not be like your parents, inevitably you end up kind of like your parents. And so growing up, my mother, man, she loves a good deal. That was her, the only one clapping. Um, and so uh, she grew up buying us a whole bunch of inexpensive things, um, cheap things. And so, you know, growing up, you're like, you know, I'll never do that, right? I'll never be like that. Uh, Yet inevitably, when I found this uh, liquidation store, it was as if I found what my heart had always desired. Uh, Because, like, your family just lives in your bones. And so uh, we wanted the bike trailer. And what we found out is that bike trailers can be extremely expensive, like upwards of, like, 1500 bucks. But I figured, you know what? I bet you that this new store, this liquidation super center, has a bike trailer. And so we went to the liquidation center, and this was like back when like lockdowns were like, remember everything was locked down the first time? Uh, like only essentials. And so we went there, and they were open. Um, and I remember asking the guy like, hey, how, how are you essential? Because like, <laughs> if you guys don't know why the stuff there is cheap, it's just all like <laughs> knockoff stuff from China. Um, and I was like, how are you guys like essential? And he's like, you'd be surprised how vague essential is. And I was like, okay, whatever, I'm going to look around. And so I looked around, and to the delight of my heart, my spirit, and my soul, I found a bike trailer. And so we made the purchase. We got the deal of a lifetime. My grandfather, who's here, actually helped us, so it was like a double deal. Uh, And and so we went home, and I I started to build this bike trailer. Now, (laughs) as soon as I opened the box pretty well, I could tell that something was awry. Uh, And one of the reasons I could tell was because, like, the instructions... Not only were they not in English, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't shooting high, 
but the pictures in the instruction did not even match the things that I had in the box. Nevertheless, as you guys know, I'm a man, and so I built the bike trailer. Pretty well, as soon as this thing was assembled, I began to notice a couple flaws in the bike trailer. Number one, this bike trailer didn't come with seatbelts. Now, it kind of did. Like, it had a strap almost like my sling right here. Uh, now, at the time, our baby girls were five months old, and they could barely lift their own heads. And so this strap, uh, needless to say, would not suffice as a seatbelt for our baby girls. But have you guys ever gotten a really good deal that you kind of just start to justify? It's like, you know what? The deal was so good, they'll grow into it. Next, strengthen, but deals like <laughs> This is a deal of a lifetime. And so I was like, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm going to attach it to my bike and take it for a spin. When I attached it to my bike, I noticed issue number two with the bike trailer. It had zero suspension. Like none at all. And if you know what suspension does, it really kind of helps you brace for things. And so I started biking around just like testing it out. And this thing, like I'm not talking about like a little bit of shake. I'm talking like shaking baby syndrome. Like every single bump, like you were hitting it, it was going. And so we had this moment where I was like, man, this thing is just not going to suffice, but I got such a good deal. We decided to sell it on Facebook Marketplace. Some other sucker bought it. Come on, somebody. However, I did warn him of all the downfalls um, of the bike chiller. However, I learned a really important question, a really important lesson. At that time, I was a new dad, Right? And so what I learned in that moment is that I can settle for a knockoff version. Like I can go the cheap, easy, convenient route, but if I settle for the knockoff, I better be prepared for all of the consequences that follow. Listen, church, I'm preaching. You don't even know it. Anytime in life we settle for a counterfeit, that is something that is a replica of that which is real. It's okay, you can do it, but you better be prepared to face any and all consequences. This morning I want to talk about sex. How's that for a segue? Come on. A few people excited. Uh, Annabelle's son not so excited. Uh, <laughs> Now, for those of you guys who don't know, maybe you live under a rock, but we live in a sex-saturated culture. And so what that means is that, like, you know, it may be uncomfortable to talk about sex in church, but the truth is if we don't talk about it in church, it's literally everywhere else. Every single song you listen to, every single music, uh, video, music, videos, movies, everything, like, we are surrounded by sex. What is the saying? Sex sells, Right? Sex sells. Like, it's, it's everywhere. Like, literally, I don't, I don't know if anyone knows this, but pornography, internet pornography, is more popular than Facebook, Amazon, Twitter combined. It's everywhere. M- millions of people are paying for sex. Like, our daughters, um, we, we show them Daniel Tiger on YouTube. It's a little kid's show. And if you guys have ever been on YouTube, have you guys ever seen the ads that come? This is a little kid's show that they watch. A lot of times the ads that come through are actually sexual in nature. And I'm like, man, there's like two-year-olds watching this. But it's really not out of the ordinary. And I would even wager to guess, many of you have seen these YouTube's ad, but you didn't even blink an eye. Because this is just our culture, right? It's it's the sex-saturated, sex is everywhere, sex sells. Sex and sexuality are everywhere. Now, I don't have to convince us of this. I think we all know this to be true. Now, now with this, our culture also has this other idea. And the other idea says this is, the, this is the time, really like the last 100 years, we are the people that have got sex right. We have the sexual revolution. Sex is unhinged. Sex is unfiltered. Whatever sexuality you want to explore, whatever avenue you want to go down, we are the generation that has it. And there's this idea that, like, hey, in 2021, our idea, our picture of sexuality, we have a picture of sex that will actually satisfy your deepest desire. We have it. Now, There's no escaping the role that culture plays on how it shapes us. We are all shaped by culture. 
every single one of us. And so if we live in a sex-saturated culture, what that means is that sex, at least in some way, your picture has been shaped by culture. You're like, no, my kid's 11 years old. Does he have a phone? He's been shaped in some way. All of us have been shaped. And so culture says we have it right, right? Like, this is good, unhinged, unfiltered. We're all good. And so, yes, we're all in some way influenced, but this is the generation that has got it right. This is the generation that understands the desires of your soul. The question I want to ask this morning is this. Is the question... Does the picture that culture gives us of sexuality, is it actually the best version? And even more so, the picture that you have of sexuality, of sex, is it the best version? Is it the most healthiest version? And in a sense, I want to ask this, is it a version that will satisfy your deepest desire? Now, our culture, as I said for the last hundred years, has really kind of been in this place of of sex saturation. And so C.S. Lewis, many years ago, he asked a pointed question when it came to sexuality. And he says this. He says, you can get together a large audience for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on a stage. Now suppose, he says, you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights came on, went out, it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. He says, would you not think that in that country something has gone wrong with the appetite for food? He says, can you imagine if we all gathered around and slowly watched a piece of bacon being revealed? But listen, look what he says next. He says, one critic said that if he found a country in which such a striptease acts with food were popular, he would conclude the people of that country were starving. I wonder, church, when it comes to our picture of sexuality, are we satisfied or are we starving? Are we starving? Are we hungry? What if the picture that we have when it comes to sex isn't actually answering the longing of our heart? Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to show you not only God's ideal for sexuality, because I believe it's the best picture, but I want to answer even a more deeper and fundamental question. What is your deepest desire? What do you really want? And this is a big spoiler alert, but it's not sexual. However, I do believe that in order to get to the picture of what you really want, you need a healthy picture of sexuality. So what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of give you a little bit of a study. So we're going to be in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I want to do is I want to get a full picture Of everything, because Genesis shows us both God's picture of sexuality and what the counterfeit looks like. Megan, I don't know if it's the devil in my head, but I just want to make sure. Are we recording? Perfect. Um, Okay, we're good. I don't want anyone online to miss this. Are you guys ready in person? You guys can't miss it because you're here, but actually you can if you don't lean in. So lean in. Take some notes. God's about to teach us something. So, like I said, I want to get the full picture. So we're going to go to Genesis. What I just said is that Genesis shows us both God's picture of sexuality, but it also shows us what the counterfeit version of sexuality looks like. And what we're going to see is that many times we settle for the counterfeit. Now, when it comes to sex, a lot of us will probably fall in a camp that says, you know what, sex is about two things generally. It's about procreation And it's about pleasure. It's either about procreation or it's about pleasure. And sometimes I can actually have pleasure while I procreate. Come on, somebody. Like, what a match made in heaven. (laughs) However, what I want to show is that that picture is kind of surface. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be digging deeper and deeper and deeper into what God's desire is for sexuality. Anyone ready to go? Is anyone ready to go? Genesis 2 says this. It says, that is why... A man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. They become, shout that word out, one flesh. They become one flesh. 
Now, this is teaching us something very important when it comes to sexuality. Sexuality in God's picture is not disconnected from marriage. I need to understand this. Now, when it comes to marriage and what binds a marriage, the Bible, the word that it uses is covenant. Now, what covenant is, covenant is just another fancy word for an agreement. But, but it's even deeper than that. It's an agreement, but every covenant, especially in the Bible, will come with it a sign. There was always a mark for every single covenant. And so marriage, being a covenant, it has a mark. It has a sign. It has something that binds it. Now, for a lot of people, it's like, well, I thought the, the marker for marriage was like a ceremony or a piece of paper. Or I thought the marker was moving in together. Or I thought the marker was when we share our bank accounts. But what the Bible says is that the marker for marriage, the thing that actually distinguishes a marriage is sex. Sex is the binder of the marriage covenant. Is everyone following? And so the reason it's the binder, it gives us it right here. It says they become one flesh. So it's showing us something important about sex and the role that it plays in marriage. It binds the covenant. It makes the covenant. It ratifies the covenant. Why? Because it binds the people together in a way to say, I am yours and you are mine. And in God's picture, it does this more so than any other event, any other act. Not a ceremony, not a bank account coming together. It is the process of sex. I am yours and you are mine. Everyone following? I want to go a little deeper. So he continues, verse 25. Adam and his wife. So I want to read the whole thing, actually. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. He's united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. So we know the purpose of it. But that there's even something more. And so from these two verses, we learn about two things. If you're taking notes, write these two things down. We learn about number one, fence posts. And number two, freedom. Now for a lot of people, when they see those words, it seems oxymoronic. Because a fence post would kind of seem to be the opposite of freedom. Right? That is, of course, depending how you see the fence post. Say, for example, you live on a busy street and you have a small dog or a little child. Is that fence post a barrier to freedom or is it a protector of freedom? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? And so in marriage, we get a fence post. What's the fence post? The fence post is the boundary for which, marriage, or for which sex lies. And it says the boundary is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's the boundary for sexuality. And what it says is that the result of sexuality, I need us to see this done right, is that they were both naked and they felt no shame. That's the freedom. That's the freedom. There is nothing more freeing than feeling no shame. So I want us to understand this. In God's version of sexuality, the fence post is not meant to restrict them, but it's actually meant to give them freedom. Why are they free? Because I am fully yours, totally and you are fully mine. The fence post gives them freedom. They are naked in every sense of the word, and they feel no shame. I need us to keep this. This is really important to remember. Now, what happens is this is kind of a world of perfection. This is God's created intention. What happens next, and I don't have time to get into it in great detail, but we see what is called the fall of man. And so what happens is sin enters the world. Now, you would think that like an event such as like going from like perfection to like a sinful reality would be like many chapters and everything would be laid out in detail. Genesis gives you very few of anything. And the reason it does that is because what it's wanting you to know is to look at the words that are said and look at the weight that each word has. And so I want us to see something because this is really interesting. It's going to help us in our study this morning to see what happens to sexuality when sin enters the world. Genesis 3, verse 7, look at this. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Did you guys catch that? The wording is not an accident. It is the direct antithesis to what we see in Genesis chapter 2. So now, when sin enters this world, they feel naked and ashamed. Naked and ashamed. Now, there's a couple of implications to this. 
one of the implications is that one of the direct results of sin is that our picture of sex and sexuality is skewed. But the other implication is this. When my relationship, when my walk with God is skewed, my picture of sex also becomes skewed. This is really important. Now, what we said from Genesis chapter 2 is that fence posts and freedom seemed oxymoronic, right? They they seem like the opposite. We get another oxymoron here in Genesis chapter 3, and I'll show it to you. It says, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. The eyes of both of them were open, and they began to feel shame. This is important. Write this one down. Their vision was distorted when their eyes were opened. Their vision was distorted when their eyes were opened. Now that seems like an oxymoron, right? Because if my eyes are open, if I see more, if I experience more, how can my vision be distorted? I think it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe a culture where where we see everything... We've seen more than ever, but what if it was actually just making us more blind? Statistics will tell us, that, and maybe in this room it's true, that 90% of boys, 60% of women, their first sexual experience will be with pornography. And so what that means, listen, I'll show you Genesis 3, is that for so many people in this room, our first experience with sex was an experience where you literally saw everything. You saw everything and some. Come on, somebody. And so the implications would be, well, if I saw everything, I know everything. But what if with our, with our vision, although our eyes were open, we actually became more distorted? Can I show you what that looks like with pornography? It means I've seen everything, but my script is wrong. Because what I learned is that sex is intrinsically for me. It's about me. It's about my pleasure. That's the most important thing. That's what porn taught me. It's it's, it's a me thing. Or for some of us, it, it taught me that sex was something that we do in secret, right? I hide it. There's shame attached to it. Our eyes are open. But what if that was just causing us to be more blind than ever? I literally saw everything, but my vision was distorted. Now, for some of us, it's like, well, maybe that's, I'm part of the 40%. I've never seen any of that stuff. I wonder for how many of us our vision of sexuality is skewed simply from social media, from Instagram, from TikTok. Because what Instagram and TikTok teach me as a woman is that my body is actually equity. That if I show it, if I expose myself, if I give a little bit of this and a little bit of that, I can actually get likes. I can actually get followers. I can actually get money. People can actually pay me to wear their stuff just because of how I look. And so I I see more than ever. I'm seeing my eyes are open, but my vision is distorted. Because what I see now is that my body is just a commodity to be traded, sold, exposed, whatever it may be. And for some of us, it's like, well, I don't even post. I just scroll. Well, guess what? Well, all you're doing is showing that, man, bodies are for me to consume. And so we see more than ever, but our vision is distorted. Is everyone following this morning? Or is it hitting a little too close to home? You see, sexually speaking, we follow the same pattern. Where we see more, we experience more. But what if that was just causing us to become more blind? So what I want to do this morning in our journey to get down to our deepest desire is I believe that we need to identify the lie. Because in order for us to uncover the truth, we need to know what the lie is. Because for so many of us, we we, we live, we are surrounded by this reality, this sex-saturated culture. And the crazy thing about truth is truth is always relative. Meaning if I think something is true, if it's all I've heard, it becomes truth to me. And so for so many of us, we have a true picture to us of what healthy sexuality is. But what I want to suggest is what if our picture was skewed? So I want to first identify the lie. 
before we get to what God's ideal is, or I should say get back to what God's ideal is. So there's two lies that I think our culture feeds on. This is both in the church and outside the church. Number one, I call the starvation lie. And number two, the fast food lie. When it comes to sex, these are the two lies, these are the two diets that many people are susceptible to. And what happens over time, sexually, the pendulum shifts. It goes from one extreme to the other. And so I'll start at starvation and I'll get to fast food because I think fast food is kind of where we lie right now. Now, the starvation lie is this. The lie is so simple. Our sexual longings and desires are a part of our humanity that needs to be suppressed or ignored. All those longings, all of those desires, they need to be suppressed or ignored. Now, the truth is, a lot of times, this is where the church falls on the spectrum, right? It's like, yeah, I know you guys have some feelings. I know you guys have some thoughts. You have some desires. But the truth is, like, don't think about it. Sex is dirty. Sex is gross. Just wait until you're married. Just, we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to just suppress it. And one of the biggest lies born out of this, especially in the church, came this idea that God is actually more pleased with you. God actually accepts you more if you suppress those feelings. If you wear a purity ring, like, you're really holy. And so all the desires, all the feelings just suppress, suppress, suppress. Get rid, get rid, get rid. They're evil. They're bad. Don't think about it. And so what happened is the church a lot of times, and, and maybe culture, but the church especially says just ignore it, suppress it, hope that these things go away. The issue is how odd is it that the God that created sex and desires would then tell me to ignore them? They're there, just don't think about it. Suppress. In fact, I like when you don't think about it. Now, this is a counterfeit. This model is a counterfeit. You see, in, in terms of what God has, fence posts and freedom, if the fence post becomes a barrier to freedom, then it's not God's fence post. Let me explain. You see, for so many people, and maybe you've experienced this pain, but for a lot of people that grow up in church, they'll tell you this. They tried so hard not to have sex until they got married. But then when they got married and now they're in the proper boundaries, they had sex, yet they feel guilty, ashamed, and naked. Why? Because how can you have a picture where something is so, so wrong two weeks ago, but now it's okay? And so literally there are people that have felt the shame because they've, they've been susceptible to a diet that is not from God. God does not say suppress all feelings, ignore all emotions. You see, every counterfeit has consequences. What's the other consequence? The church, at least people's perception is that the church does not like people that struggle sexually, whatever that sexual sin is. Because if God is pleased when we repress, there would be nothing more displeasing than when we don't, than when we chase after it. And so there's this idea that comes forward that God is against sex. God is against people that struggle sexually. God just really hates sex. And so here's the biggest issue with the starvation lie. Instead of the church being the community and the place to help people make sense of their longings, the church became a place that told people to just ignore them. Now you need to understand something when it comes to a pendulum. If we don't feel satisfied, the pendulum always shifts. Because the truth is most of us do not want to live in an existence where we are not satisfied with the answers that we are given. And so for a lot of people, it's like, well, if the church just says ignore it, these feelings aren't real, they're from the devil, then either I'm wrong, I'm messed up, I'm a joke, or, or, or God's messed up. Or maybe there is no God. Or maybe this whole sexual thing, the church just has it wrong. And so what happens is the pendulum shifts. And this is where we get the fast food diet. Now, Starvation says repress your feelings. The fast food says reduce your feelings. And what that means is reduce your feelings, whatever it is, to something that is physical. So here's the lie when it comes to fast food. Your desires are all physical. Therefore, if you feel it, do it. 
everything that wages within you, listen, it can be, it will be met physically. There's a way. And if you, if, you, if you meet that way physically and you don't feel good, that just means maybe there's another avenue you need to go down. You need to explore. You need to indulge. And so what we see is that the fast food diet is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from the starvation diet. But it came as a result of the starvation diet. Because the church for a long time didn't know how to talk about sex healthily. That's a word. You see, it's ironic because in the starvation diet, they put fences more tighter than even God puts fences. And so therefore, freedom's taken away. In the fast food diet, fence posts are gone completely. But the reason that they're taken away is with the belief that this will lead to freedom. Freedom is found in a lack of boundaries. Sex, listen, this is, this is what the fast food lie says. Sex is purely physical. That's it. You are a physiological being. You have sexual urges. You have sexual desires. Therefore, meet every desire physically. That is what will satisfy you. And the truth is, come on, we all know, it feels good. And so the logic is it feels good, it must be good. But let me tell you something. Online, you need to listen to this. Just because something feels good, it doesn't mean it's good for you. I remember from my grandparents' 60th anniversary, went to the Royal Buffet. Um, despite its title, it's not that royal. Um, anyways, been to like a Royal Buffet before? Like an all-you-can-eat buffet? Uh, now you're saying like it's pretty fancy for like an anniversary. Why would you go there? I think my mom found a Groupon. Um, <laughs> Like I said, it's a disease that runs deep. Um, but we went to the Royal Buffet, and, and you guys can picture a buffet of any kind, right? And the thing about these buffets is that seemingly they have all that your heart could ever desire, right? Like we got, like no nation is left off the board at the Royal Buffet. Like we got India, we got China, we got Italy, we got America, we got, like nothing is left off the table at a Royal Buffet. And the beauty is everything is like triple deep fried. And so you look, right, because everything's there. And most times when you go to a buffet, you guys been there like, I'm not going to eat today. I'm just going to wait. <laughs> like, I really want to enjoy this. Now, the idea and the implication would be if you're hungry and you went into a place that seemingly had everything you could ever want, would not indulging then satisfy the hunger in your stomach? That's just logical, right? But the truth is, come on somebody, we've all been to the Royal Buffet. We've all had that moment where we just finished that soft serve ice cream on top of the brownie that helped us wash down the Szechuan noodles and that piece of pizza. We've all had that moment. And you would think, because I satisfied the hunger, I would feel better than when I came in. But the truth is, we've all been there. You actually feel worse than you leave. You want to know why? Because just because something is good doesn't mean it's always good for you. You see, anyone would tell you, no matter how lewd, no matter how out of bounds the sexual experience was, no matter how sick it is, every single sexual experience has some aspect of good in it, feeling-wise. Otherwise, you would never do it. But the truth is, just because it feels good doesn't mean it's good for you. And so the lie of the fast food diet is that because it feels good, it is good. You see, in the starvation, in the fast food diet, sex is actually God. Sex is God, and so therefore serve it, and it will be good. But the issue with the fast food diet in the same way when it comes to sexuality as it is with food is that although there may be a temporary moment where we feel full, the truth is it just leaves us feeling more hungrier than ever <laughs> and thirstier. How much sodium at those places? You see, the truth is in the fast food diet, a lot of times by the end of the experience, you know what you feel? Naked and ashamed. Naked and ashamed. Anyone that has ever watched porn will tell you by the end of it, you feel naked and ashamed. But the reason you go back is with the hope that it'll satisfy the longing of my soul. 
And maybe it does for a second, but then I feel naked and ashamed. And so it's wash and repeat. And this is how you know that you're stuck serving a counterfeit version of what God has for you. Anyone that has ever had a sexual experience outside of the boundaries that God gives, there's moments where it feels really good. There's moments where it feels really safe. But the truth is, without the fence post, without the covenant, it's just shallow. Because the depth is actually found in the commitment. And for some people, they know the pain of what happens when a sexual relationship ends. And some of us have felt the deep and devastating pain of those ended sexual relationships. Do you want to know why it's so painful? Because you've experienced something that has ended that was never supposed to end. It's a perpetual covenant. That's why we do it over and over and over again. And so when it ends, you've experienced a pain you were never meant to experience. And what happens for a lot of us in those places, instead of digging into that pain, instead of healing, because that's really painful, we just go to the next. Because I'm going to go to the next sexual relationship. Because I don't want to feel the pain. And then what we realize is like that wasn't very satisfying. So maybe that, that, they were the issue. So I go from the next relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship. Seeking to fulfill the desire of my heart. Because fast food says indulge and then you will be satisfied. But the truth is this. Do you want to know how we know that sex is not purely just physical? Because if it was just physical, we wouldn't feel the emotional pain that we do when it comes to sex and sexuality. The question I want to ask is this, when it comes to fast food, how many of us have indulged and still have not felt satisfied? You see, starvation and fast food are, exist on opposite ends of the spectrum, but neither is really the answer. Neither satisfies the soul. Now what I said, now the logical part would be, well, if those aren't the real answers, what's God's picture? What's God's plan for sexuality? Truth is, I already went there, but I'll go back. It's fence posts, that's the context of marriage, that leads to freedom. It's a powerful picture. Literally, the reason it says they were naked and unashamed is because every single time that you make love within the context in which God created it to be, you are saying over and over and over again, you are safe with me. I am yours. You are mine. That's the way that God intended it to be. It's an intimacy. It's an intimacy that you are to experience. Now, for a lot of people, our culture has bought the lie. And the lie of culture says, you know what? Intimacy is actually born out of experience, right? I got to take the bike around the block a few times. How will I know otherwise? And so the lie says intimacy is born out of experience. The more I indulge in it, the more partners I have, the more notches on my belt, that is how I will become the best lover. That is an absolute lie. Intimacy is not born out of experience. Intimacy is bred out of exclusivity. Out of exclusivity. What it means is the deepest form of intimacy is not experience. It's when I know for sure I can be naked and ashamed because there is no one else. A lot of times in marriage, you know what happens? We haven't even healed from the past. And so we come into context, and it's like, well, this should be good. I'm naked. But we still carry the shame. God's version of sexuality is naked and unashamed. It's not fast food. It's not starvation. It's the banquet. God wants you to experience the banquet. And the banquet is found from the power of becoming one, naked and unashamed. And that is bred only within the context that God created it to be. Now, a lot of times, if you didn't paint the picture, God's version of sex is within marriage. Come on, somebody. Now, a lot of times, this is where the preacher would end the sermon. Now, kingdom church rules, I should be done. However... I'm not going to be done, and you guys should be okay with that. If you're not, you're free to leave, but uh, online, you can click out. But I don't want to end there.
Because what I've said is that what we're doing in this message is we're going deeper and deeper and deeper, layer after layer after layer, because we know what God's picture of sexuality is. We know what he wants. I hope you know why he wants it for us. But the truth is, this leaves us two questions when it comes to the desires of our heart. Question number one is this. How then can I be single or not married and satisfy the desire that longs within me? Because a lot of times the church just says get married. But we already said in week two of this series that marriage isn't ultimate. God is ultimate. So how can I be single and satisfy the desire that longs within me? Here's question number two. If sex within marriage is God's plan, how come I can have sex within marriage and not be satisfied? How come I, have, how come I can have sex in the way that God designed it, but I still don't feel the satisfaction in my soul? These are two questions that we must address. But the beauty of these two questions is that I believe these two questions and this unsatisfaction you will have in your soul is actually supposed to lead you to the greatest satisfaction of all. You see, what if sex and the desires that come with it was not the end? What if sex fulfilled within marriage wasn't the end? What if all of these desires, what if everything was not supposed to be an end but a signpost? A signpost to point us to something even deeper. I get to quote the great CS twice in one sermon. He says it like this. He says, if I find myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know what he's saying? If I've chased sex and it doesn't satisfy, if I've even got married because I thought that's going to be how I satisfy this desire and I still don't feel satisfied, what he's saying is perhaps the reason you don't feel satisfied is because those things were never the end of itself. Perhaps the reason you feel that way is because sex isn't the end. It's just a signpost. It's a signpost to what? To something deeper. It's a signpost. All of those feelings, all of those desires to something deeper that actually is deep down within you. And that is the deepest desire of your soul. Because the truth is this, when the Bible talks about sex and sexuality, never does it frame it in a way that says this is what you always need. This is your greatest desire. It never says that. So so what if sex wasn't an end, but what if it was just a signpost, a symbol to point us to something deeper? You see, what I said and what we saw in Genesis is that in God's version, they were naked and unashamed. That was perfection. And this gives you the clue to what the deepest desire of your heart is. Do you want to know what it is? The deepest desire of each and every one of us in this room is to be naked and unashamed. What I mean by that is that each and every one of us, we long, we desire to be fully known, yet fully loved. Fully known, yet fully loved. That is your deepest desire. And this is why sex outside of the context of marriage will never satisfy that because you will never be fully known until you're fully accepted. But this is why even within marriage, what if sex wasn't the end but just a signpost? Because within marriage, you are naked, you are unashamed, but the truth we all know is this, even your spouse, even your partner, even they don't know you fully. No one knows you fully. No one knows you thoroughly. You want to know why? Because each and every one of us have parts of ourselves that we want to hide. Each and every one of us are filled with insecurities. Each and every one of us are filled with doubts. Each and every one of us intrinsically is filled with nakedness and is filled with shame. And there's this script in our head that says, if anyone truly knew me, if anyone knew the real me, they could never accept me. They would never love me. And so we hide it and so we suppress it, but the desire just builds. Because I want to be known. I need to be known. I need to be loved. But there's just no one out there. For a lot of people, God is the complete opposite. 
Because we agree, okay, God is omniscient. God knows everything about me. I know that. That's why I hide. Because he's seen the deepest parts of me. He's seen my depth. He's seen those parts. If anyone else saw that, they would never, ever speak to me again. But guess what? God did something about that. You see, what sin did is it left us naked and ashamed, exposed because of our faultiness. You want to know what the king of the universe did to combat your nakedness and your shame? He came down in the form of Jesus. And what he did on a cross is he hung up there naked and ashamed. And what he was doing there was saying, because I'm naked, because I'm ashamed, you don't have to be anymore. You can come to me fully. I'm the deepest desire of your heart. But you're like, Harrison, like, what about the physical aspect? Like, like I long to have someone that's, that's, that's given their self for me. Look what Isaiah 53 says. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment brought us peace was on him by his wounds. We are healed. By his wounds we are healed. You know what that means? Jesus gave himself for you. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. Look at this. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar to the two became one flesh? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We're, we're one. We're one. We're one. Listen, what if, what if marriage, what if sex was never an ultimate but just a signpost back to Jesus? Back to the relationship I truly need. Back to the only relationship I actually need. You want to know how I can be single and secure? It's because everything I have is found in Jesus. The one who loved me. The one who died for me. The one who gave his body for me. The one who was naked and ashamed so I don't have to be. Jesus, listen to this church, is the answer to the deepest longing of your soul. You long to be fully known and fully accepted and is only found in Jesus. You want to know why we sing those songs, tear down the walls of religion, tradition? It's because religion brings back the lie. The lie that says there's something you have to do to gain God's approval. And so when I fall short, I feel naked again. Romans 8, chapter 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He sees you, your nakedness, your shame, and he still chooses you. You see, what if every desire, what if every longing, what if every symbolic act was always just a signpost back to Jesus? Let's stand for a second, church. I want us to receive this last part. In John chapter 7, there's a festival going on. It's known as the, festi the, the, the Festival of the Tabernacle. And what happens in this festival was that on the last day of the festival, they would have this, this ceremony known as the Water Liberation Ceremony. And so what they would do on this festival, on the last day, they would do something symbolic. And they did it out as a cry to God. And what they would do is they would pour out water and the reason they would pour out water was with the hopes that God would see the symbol and one day bring an abundant harvest to the people of Israel. In other words, they would cry out. They, they would, this thing was just a symbol in order for God to see them, to fulfill the desolate and empty spots inside of them. And so they would do it year after year, year after year, waiting, hoping, looking for satisfaction. But something happens in John chapter 7. And something happens and it affects the people of Israel, but it affects each and every one of us as well. It says, on the last and data, the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Now you need to understand how crazy this would be because this was a holy ceremony. They were about to pour this water. I almost imagine as if they were in the midst of pouring it. And this was a sacred moment. Like this is what we need to do. This is how God will see us. Jesus stands up and he says, let anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. In other words, you don't need to chase these things any longer. It's just a signpost to me. I'm here. 
He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink for whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Listen to this church, right here, right now in this moment, Jesus is standing and in a loud voice, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, he's saying, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Every, every head bow, every eye closed right now, because I know right now in this moment there are people that feel thirsty. And maybe for the first time we're going to put away some chains. I'm going to put away the chains of performance, meaning there's nothing I have to do to gain God's approval. Jesus has already done it all. For some of us, it's, it's the shame of our experiences, the shame of going too far, the shame of experiencing things we've already and should never have experienced. Guess what? This is for you too. Jesus, right now in this moment, is an invitation to anyone who is thirsty, to anyone who is searching, to anyone who wants satisfaction for their soul's desire. Jesus is here today in this moment. So right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, we're going to do two things. Number one, I want to give people a chance to make a decision in this moment for Jesus. You're saying, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty, pastor. I need Jesus. If that's you this morning, I'm just going to count backwards from three and just show me your hand. You're saying, I want Jesus. I need Jesus. I'm desperate. There's nothing else I can do. I want to be known. I want to be loved. If that's you, just show me your hand. In three, two, one, just show me your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Come on, thank you. Anyone that just wants to feel satisfied. God, you see every hand. You see every heart, Jesus. Lord, I pray in this moment right now that they can receive you that they can feel your comfort, that they can feel your spirit, that anyone who is thirsty, come to the well, come to the spring. God, I pray for anyone that has shame, that the chains would be moved, that the veil would be lifted, and they could come to you free, holy, unashamed because of you. Thank you, God, for every hand. Thank you, God, for every hand.